Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 908. On today's program, we begin with Eric Longenhagen welcoming our newest staff writer to the program, Kevin Goldstein. Kevin is returning to the world of writing after being hired by the Houston Astros in 2012. The former assistant GM shares stories of what it was like to truly be inside the world of baseball, what he'll be doing at Fangraphs, and what this feeling is like for him. To, to be back on this side of things, I was uh, joking with our editor Meg Rowley and just and told her like at times I feel like I was cryogenically frozen in a cave for eight years and by, as far as kind of how to deal with being on the public side. But I'm pumped about it. I'm, I'm psyched and, and having fun. And Following that, David Lorela is joined by Ruben Amaro Jr. to talk about his own storied career. Amaro, the son of a major leaguer, was a major leaguer himself and a front office executive and general manager of the Phillies, a first base coach, and television analyst for NBC Sports Philadelphia. The pair discuss all kinds of Philadelphia sports history, as well as the many incredible players that Amaro got to play with as well as against. I got thrown out by Ken Griffey Jr. like two or three times in my rookie year. He was playing for Bellingham, Washington. And I remember calling one of my buddies up, uh, David Esker, who's now the head coach at, at Stanford, and I called him up and said, I just think I saw a Hall of Famer. He's 17 years old. He's the best player I think I've ever seen. I think he threw me out two or three times in, in the very first series I played in professional baseball. And I had already graduated from Stanford at the time. He was only 17 years old. Fangraphs Audio is brought to you by our listeners and supporters. If you'd like to help us keep doing all the cool things we do, head on over to the Fangraphs.com store and see if there's anything that catches your eye. Can I recommend one of our new mugs? Or of course an ad-free membership for yourself or as a gift. Thank you so much for your support. Enjoy the show. No, Dylan, I'll do it. You can't expect the new guy to know how to intro the podcast. Uh, hi, Eric Longenhagen, where sit, make podcasts at computer. <laughs> uh, this is Eric Longenhagen, Fangraphs lead prospect analyst with another Fangraphs audio segment. I'm joined today by our newest writer, Kevin Goldstein. Kevin, how's it going? Do you not know my last name? Was that a guess? I had to look. I had to... <laughs> I know that you were involved in some form of nepotism at BP, uh-huh. and your son Craig now runs it or something like that. My beautiful boy. As I vetted you for several weeks leading up to your hire, these are the things. I have a whole dossier on you, and th- that was one of the things that people told me. I'm, um, I'm sure you heard lots of other non-truths. Yes. Uh, it turns out I did. Um so yeah, I'm, we're here to welcome you to uh, back to the online space to Fangraphs.com. I don't. We can't satisfactorily cram almost a decade worth of you being in baseball into 20 minutes. But how was that? If you could, <laughs> <laughs> if you could try to cram it in to a few sentences, how would you describe those eight years? The highs were very high. The lows were very low. Overall, I. You know, I'm not going to act like I didn't have a good time. I had a really good time, and there was lots of ugly too, obviously. The last year or so was pretty... I was told not to curse by our beautiful producer, Dylan, um, so he's just going to bleep this. The last year or so was pretty miserable, but in a better place. Like, super happy to be here. This is fun. It's a little... It's been a little weird to to be back on this side of things. I was uh, joking with our editor, Meg Rowley, and just and told her, like, at times I feel like I was cryogenically frozen in a cave for eight years, and by, as far as kind of how to deal with being on the public side. But I'm pumped about it. I'm, I'm psyched and, and having fun and in the middle of a 
writing my first kind of how the sausage is made article, um, which will be up by the time this is out. Uh, it's, it's about how minor league contracts work. And, and on that sentence alone, it might sound like something pretty boring, but I actually found it to be a fascinating subject. And I hope the readers do too. And, 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 you know, plan to write more of these kind of things talking about, you know, big picture things like, like free agent signings and, and how trade talks work and, and, and various other industry aspects. But there's a lot of the, the weird nitty gritty stuff is actually the stuff that ended up, at least for me, that I found the most fascinating, like, like minor league contracts and, and the process of, of, you know, how players end up in Asia when they're affiliated with a team and things like that. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm here to kind of, you know, share my experience and hopefully, hopefully, uh, entertain and educate along the way, as they say. And, you know, obviously be working with you very closely on the, on the, 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 the scouting and player development side of things and gonna do all sorts of stuff. And it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it too. It is nice to certainly look, we haven't been asking folks to subscribe to the site to change our business model just for the hell of it. Right. Like <laughs> there's a reason that we've been doing that for the last little while and had to furlough contributors and brought Kevin on when it was clear that Craig Edwards was going to leave to go work for the Players Association, which publicly, let me just say, like, that's historic and incredible and congratulations to Craig and we'll miss him terribly at the site. Uh, but yeah, I'm really excited to have a guy who was an 80 at this job and just join the site. Like, it's just not often that you get to bank someone like this in this space. So I'm glad to have you aboard as well. When you first left BP, what was the lead up to that like? Because I know it sounds like at the time the the Astros had approached Keith Law and then that didn't work out and then they came to you. What was the initial discussion like? Weird. That whole year was very strange. It was 2012. It really kind of started in December of 2011. I started to get in a very strange position of, of you know, for a, a couple of years, I, you know, I had people, I, I, you know, just like you, you talked to a lot of people in, in the industry and, and I did have people and I know you get this too saying, Hey, you know, if something happens here or there, or if I end up going somewhere else or something happens here, we might want to talk to you about working for us. And I would always go, yeah, that's great. Whatever. And then didn't think it was any sort of reality. And then, and then some of those conversations started to get a little more serious. And I, you know, I actually did meet with a team in their suite at the, at the winter meetings in 2011 in December that really didn't go anywhere had other teams reaching out and has actually started to really talk to teams and, you know, had kind of a interview with one and, and some pretty intense discussions with another and, and, and a couple other things here and there. And then kind of out of nowhere, uh, Jeff Luno sent me a Twitter DM and said, Hey, we're in Chicago. We're playing the Cubs. This is you know before their, their move to the American league. And he said, you know, we're in Chicago. We're playing the Cubs. Could you meet me or let's talk to you. And uh, it seemed like a good idea. And so I did that and actually, you know, my, my first, second I got there, I met with him and someone else and, and, um, it just, I'm like, oh, this is a job interview. So I actually got, you know, my, my first interview was actually in the stands at Wrigley Field watching a very bad Astros team. And, uh, it obviously went well and, and, uh, just said he's going to get in touch and he wants me to fly to Houston for a more formal thing. And I said, okay. And, and I treated it like, a joke. I'm not going to lie. Like I remember packing my bags. I dressed very casually. I remember, you know, as I was packing my bags, joking with my wife, like this is ridiculous. I'm not going to get this job. No one's going to hire me. And I got it. And, um, you know, he made an offer. We had some negotiations, worked some things out. And, and that was that. And all of a sudden I was working in baseball. 
as soon as you arrived and started to be integrated into the day-to-day machinations of the org, what were some of the things that were going on on the team side that you had no idea were going on? Like, what were some of the things that were clear bars set higher in the team space than were being discussed in the public spaces in terms of like scouting and, and player dev? How big was the gap at that time? At, at times it was small and at times it was big. It depends on the area. Like I, I feel like in retrospect, I went into it not really understanding player development well at all. And, and some of the things that are involved and just really the manpower involved in, on, on the player development side in terms of just headcount, the number of people and the amount of work that goes into it, I think I, I, I drastically underestimated. But it was, I mean, until you do it, it, it's kind of like a shock from top to bottom. Like it was, you know, it was my second day or so. And, you know, I got an email saying, hey, we're talking to the athletics. And it was, you know, the trade literally took months. I think it took three months. The one that eventually netted the Astros, Stassi, Peacock, Chris Carter. Like, who do you like? You know, what do you like? Who do you like with them? Who's interesting? Let's get this going. And I was like, oh, shit, am I involved with this? You know, I, I did not. Like, I was like, you know, I was like, I just thought I'm going to have help and you know, provide reports and then they'll make decisions. I'm, I'm in on this stuff. Okay. And so even with that, but, you know, just to see the, you know, just the pure machinations of, of what it takes or, or how things are put together. You know, we know, you know, when we're writing about it, we know that obviously teams have lots of scouts and they're out there getting ready to, to do the draft, but to see all the planning that goes into it and, and how much they know about the players kind of going into their draft year and all the planning that goes into how we're going to see these players and how that gets altered and things like that. I mean, I was in charge, I was responsible for defining our pro coverage and, and putting all of that together. Initially, was that your initial responsibility? or did it, it was. It was from day one. Uh, I mean, I went into, I, I walked into that interview with, I don't want to say a deck because I did not use PowerPoint, but I did walk into there saying, if you put me in charge of pro scouting, this is how I will run things. This is how I would do coverage and this is how I would staff things. So yeah, I was doing that from day one. And what was that like? Because I mean, Kylie and I wrote about basically a similar sort of outline our similar thoughts in future value. So what, how at that time did you think pro scouting should be structured? You know, I, I did think that it was kind of a, I, I always called it a reverse pyramid where we were spending more time, the, the higher up you go, the more you know about the player, the high, more of a performance record you have. Uh, at that time, you know, things have changed. The more data you had, the more data and video you had, which is still the case in some ways, but not that the gap isn't the same, but like where we really need to be focused. And it's something I think, you know, honestly, you know, originators a little strong, but I think it's something that we were really on the forefront of. We're scouting below a ball, if you will, for scouting rookie level and, 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 and even in the Dominican and, and, you know, asking for players who at times the, the, the GMs maybe didn't even know that well and things like that and, and getting off some of the prospects and, and making upside plays and asking for, you know, a pitcher who had 15 innings in the GCL like Francis Marquez or, or asking for, you know, a guy like Jordan Alvarez who hadn't even had a pro plate appearance yet. And, and like the goal was to maybe try to hit on these kind of early players, you know, and, and, you know, we had scouts assigned specifically. I mean, they didn't really travel at all. They just, you know, we had a scout in Arizona and a scout in Florida, and they really just did rookie levels and instructs to try to find these young players that we could, you know, maybe ask for and get in a trade before they became prospects. That was the goal was to try to find those kind of players. And we certainly did cover you know, the minor leagues all the way to AAA, but there was a real focus on certainly below AA was more of a priority. And part of that was because it felt to me 
like an untapped potential, but it also, you know, it certainly did speak of where the Astros were as an organization as well. You know, we were more interested in getting a player who would be able to help in in four years than one because, you know, the guy's going to help in one is, you know, that's great. We're going to win 73 games instead of 67. Yeah, it's been interesting the last couple of weeks as we've kind of chatted and made sure that we don't hate each other. That How's that working out? It's fine. Okay. Yeah, sure. Fine. (laughs) But... It is interesting to watch as trades get done, especially the trades that we've seen just over the last couple of weeks. There does seem to be a point where the prospects become almost unacquirable or that there are clearly teams who are trying to target the types of players who, because of owner-imposed budgetary constraints, might become someone who they wouldn't be able to acquire on the free agent market, like the Rays, you know, Chris Archer trade. And getting Patino back for Blake Snell, like targeting players who you wouldn't be able to acquire if they hit in free agency. And so it seems as though that teams more recently are taking bulk back in prospects in some of these trades. Like certainly nothing is going to be enough for Nolan Arenado. Right. But to get five okay kind of prospects (laughs) back rather than one Francisco Mejia sort of mitigates risk. And it seems as though teams are taking this depth-based approach toward farm system building. Is there anything about that that's, that seems true to you, that that's become more pervasive? Are there any reasons for that that you think you can articulate? I think there's a couple of reasons. One is, I mean, you already said, which is kind of risk mitigation. And I think one thing we've seen over the last decade or so is teams become, I'll just say overly, dependent on risk mitigation, like they're they're overly focused rather on on risk mitigation, where they're far more worried about that than maybe some success possibilities, if that makes sense. And so, you know, you get six prospects and and you hope to work out is a lot better than getting maybe two really good prospects with a much better chance and one works out. And I I think that's how they see it. And I I do think there's a an upside issue with that sometimes, but I, I do think risk mitigation is is absolutely everything right now. And I I, I think a lot of teams overplay that hand and they make mistakes and then they're kind of bound for this kind of mediocrity window as opposed to being really good because of it. But if everybody is mediocre, then everyone is competitive, which seems to be the path <laughs> that the teams are taking. Like everyone, if everyone is behaving, there's a game theory component to this, right? That I just sure. don't have the intellectual horsepower to really do mathematically. Like, But for sure, if, if this type of philosophy is permeating baseball and everyone is behaving in this way, then you'll just have a bunch of approximately 80 win teams. And then everyone's job is nice and secure because you have that level of intrigue created by this sort of uniform level of competition. And then, of course, I I think that the Yankees and the Dodgers and teams like that are just going to flex their money to to stay towards the top of that bubble. But Mm -hmm. I I do think that something like that is is coming and that, that that's what these owners are I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if there's some amount of collusion essentially going on where it's just like, hey, let's just all do this. Let's just all behave in this way and we'll all sort of be in the mix. And they'll argue that if everyone is doing the exact same thing, then the people who are best at doing it are the ones rewarded, like the ones who are just best at scouting the players then or signing the right players for this diluted amount of money will be the ones who ascend to the top, which is what would have happened anyway, I guess, but I'm not sure if that's true. So at what point during your tenure in Houston then did stuff start to shift where the structure of the scouting staff there began to be augmented in a way that it sort of went away? The in-person scouting stuff started to dwindle away. 
who in the org drove that process and was it just as you guys were understanding some of the technological components and their usefulness or was that a preconceived desire on Luno's part? Because it seemed as though from a third party perspective that he was a guy who just didn't like scouts or was horny for efficiency or whatever. Yeah, I think didn't like scouts is is, is very, very strong. I mean, it certainly, there's always an obsession with efficiency there. And, you know, you talked about return investment. And, and as we got, especially the big, as the big league data and video grew and then the minor league data video and grew, we started doing more evaluations based more on that and, and getting more comfortable with that kind of thing combined with some, you know, ugly management consulting stuff. All of a sudden, um, we greatly reduced our pro scouting footprint and it, you know, it quickly went down to, a few people and in the end went down to, to, you know, zero people with that title. And it was, you know, in personal opinion, it was overdone. I, I do think pro scouting needs to evolve and change. And, and, and I think pro scouting and then the way we evaluate players needs to, you know, be leaning on everything we have. But I do think there's a, a lost piece from not going in person at times. And, and it's interesting that you know, when you think about what pro scouts do, and I think pro scouts are really good evaluators and, 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 and provide a really valuable piece to what people do or to what teams do. At the same time, like, you know, I think some of the stuff that really got lost when we, you know, all but eliminated pro scouting and eventually really did eliminate it was that, you know, one of the most valuable people in my staff was, and he's still in baseball with another team now and, and doing really well, you know, was a guy who was a little on the younger side, just really was recently off the field, if you will, and just recently, you know, stopped playing had played for multiple organizations, had played, uh, you know, nearly every level of the, of the majors, had some, some, you know, real big league service time, is an outgoing, super friendly guy that everybody knows and everybody likes. And his ability to help the team just in terms of makeup digs. Hey, we're looking at this player. Can you just do a dig on him and find out what, you know, what makes this guy tick, what this guy's like? And he, he'd get energized by me, like, like within an hour. He'd get back to me and say, oh, I talked to this player, talked to that player, talked to this player, and all guys from different organizations, and they play with them, and this is what they said, and this is what they said. And, you know, the value, I would have loved to have kept him on, and I didn't even need him to travel and see baseball. Just have him for that. It was worth its weight in gold in my mind. You know, so so I, I just, you know, I, I do think, you know, what the Astros did was a bit of hitting a nail with a sledgehammer, if you will, but I, I, mean, I do think scouting is changing, and I'm not happy that people are losing their jobs. I, I think it's bad, but I, I do think scouting needs to be more, you know, the waiting between in-person and data and video and all those things does need to be addressed if you want to do it right and you want to get baseball players right. Yeah, and part of the, not really a problem, but part of what makes it such a complex thing to try to solve and change is just that the world itself is so complex and evolving very rapidly. Like, teams, in my opinion, should have to buy carbon offsets when their staff travels like stuff like that you know like is a pretty good argument for reducing and just everyone's personal well-being is like an argument for reducing the amount of of travel that scouts do i agree with you for sure like wrote a whole book about it basically that there's real value in the things that are derived from the in-person component when it's done properly. It in and of itself is not necessarily valuable. But if I send a guy who's got 30 years experience and knows three members of the minor league coaching staff that he's in there to see, or if the scout just has interpersonal relationships that 
bring about information that cannot be gleaned from video or data. Like I think there's real value in that, whether it's however you define makeup or you know how they define poise, mm-hmm. things like this are they're all really important components that I think, yeah, not only do we need, I think, to augment and evolve the way scouting is done, but also who does the scouting? Like, I don't know maybe if anyone's been in a hole for the last couple of weeks, but not a whole lot of social acumen in a totally male industry. <laughs> not really not. Not great at it when you're trying to parse people. Yeah. And, and go, I mean, going it. back to your earlier point, that kind of travel and quality of life stuff was really important to me. It's it's one of the reasons, A, I thought it was better for for my staff, but I also thought it was better for in terms of like the work output I'd get is... You know, I, I think I was the only team to be doing it is, is we designed uh, a pro scouting setup that was not org based and not multi-level. Uh, my scouting staff was very much modeled off the amateur world and my pro staff was geographic based. So, you know, I had a guy living in Georgia and he covered um, you know, the Sally and the Carolina League. I had a guy who lived right in Carolina and he covered the Carolina and the Sally League and have, and have some Southern League stuff. And I had a, you know, a scout living in Maryland who, who, who had tons of, of, you know, New York Penn League and, and some Sally League stuff, obviously, and Carolina stuff that was easy to get to. You know, scout in Illinois doing some AAA stuff and I had the whole Midwest League. And I only had three, at the time, I think I only had three out of 12 scouts who ever, ever need to get on an airplane. Everything else was just driving, and it let them, A, obviously the travel was a lot less. It let them see more games because, uh, you know, as you know, when you travel, you often lose a day. So it let, it let them see more games. It let them spend more time in their own bed, and, and I thought that was a really great combination, and that was important to me, but it also led to better work, I thought. And so that's another piece of just maybe the efficiency puzzle, and it's, I think it's another way we can we can do this smarter. All right, and then so towards the end of your tenure in Houston, and you know you wrote about this in your piece, so you can talk about it as much as you want here. I think that what you wrote in your intro piece is sufficient, but certainly is worth mentioning here because I'll have something to say about it too. But at what point, like what was the last year and a half like for you? At what point did it become clear that you'd be perhaps considering a return to the public side of things? I mean, it happened pretty quick you know, after, after Jeff left or, or was fired really. And, and obviously we brought in a new, a new GM and James Click. And it just felt from day one that I, I wasn't being utilized or, or being used uh, anywhere near at the level I was in the past, for the past seven years. And it's not hard to figure that thing out. And it's, it's something that happens in this industry. And, and I'll, I'll, I've said this privately to many people and I'll say it here again. James Click is the GM. He has every right to, to model a front office in his vision, and that's how it is. I don't necessarily agree with the decision, but he's got every right to do it. I'm not I'm not mad about it. And so I was definitely thinking about what's next, probably, you know, spring and summer already. And obviously I had a good time working in baseball. It's not like I didn't really enjoy being on the media side. I loved it. I had a great time. And so it was definitely something that was a possibility. And you know, when, when things went down and I got axed, 
you know, some, some media people reached out, but uh, you know, I hope you don't mind me talking about this. You and I already had a couple conversations before then. Yeah. Like if something happens, would you talk to Fangraphs? And I was like, yeah, I think I would. And I did talk to some, some different outlets and things like that. And, and I thought Fangraphs offered me the best opportunity just in terms of which place would I enjoy the most, which place would, you know, would be best for me personally. And, and, and then that was really what the decision was based on. And, and here I am. Yeah, it was sort of kismet. It was serendipitous timing that we lost Craig right around the same time that things opened up for you. And yeah, again, like I, I'm not going to write about this, so I might as well just say it here that like the reaction to you joining the site yesterday was overwhelmingly positive, and I'm really excited about it. There are certainly people who are upset for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. My neck is the one sticking out on this as much as anybody else at the site, if not more so than than David or anybody, because I'm the snoop. I'm the one who's supposed to go into my phone and learn about stuff like this. And I came away, certainly it isn't unanimous just because it's just not going to be, but you know, I came away satisfied that you're in good standing in baseball and certainly the MLB investigation into what happened with the trash can, uh, you know, revealed that part of it as well. So- I'm really glad that you're here. What are some of the things that we're going to do? I'm, I'm supposed to, now that you're here, we're supposed to like do stuff together, I guess, which again, seems, sounds fine. Oh, wait, no, no, nobody told me that. Okay. Well, we're, we're, you and I work together now? Uh, yes. Um, so yeah, I know we're going to have fun. I, I think you and I, you know, can work. I mean, I think you know, don't take this wrong. I think you need help. I, I think what you're doing is far more than a one man job. <laughs> And, um, you know, take it from someone who used to, I mean, I used to do it as a one man job myself and it was completely overwhelming. And in terms of just like number of players and players breadth, I was doing, I don't know, half of what you were doing. Right. And so I, I think that's really important. I, and I, that, and that was too, that was overwhelming, you know, the off season period and, and the rankings and stuff like that. It's, it's too much. And so. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm 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 here to help with that, and I, I think you know we've talked about this. We're gonna you know in the future, I'm kind of coming late to the party, you know, in terms of your world. So I'm here to help this year, and then I think you know in the future, I think a lot of the prospect stuff will become more of a collaborative thing, you know, with with, with you leading and me supporting. And at the same time, you know, like I talked about in my intro, I'm going to be writing lots of you know, for, for lack of a better term, standard fangrass fair and, and, you know, analyzing and reacting to the news of the day, but also hopefully providing some specific pieces. Like, you know, this one we talked about and some others where I'm, you know, hopefully providing a little insight that comes from, you know, working eight years as an executive for a big league team. Right. Yeah. And look, it's true. Like it's hard writing up 2000 players every year. <laughs> it's really hard. It's too much. You're doing too much. I love it. But as I'm getting older, it is starting to have like an actual impact on my well-being. How old are you, Eric? 32. Yeah, shut, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like I don't know what else to do. I'm not satisfied by doing anything less than what it is I'm doing. So I just continue to yep. do it this way. Absolutely. And yeah, there are people who are just like, you should, man, if you worked for a team, maybe you'd be able to relax. And the fact that people were saying that to me is crazy. Yeah, that's disturbing right there. But uh, because I know that all... I will still follow me to a team if I end up going, but yeah, I'm happy to have you. And we, we talked about this too. Like I'm too tired to have an ego about where we put Albert Abreu on the Yankees list. <laughs> if we disagree about it, like it's, it's just, it's just going to be fine. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I hope our readership and listenership 
is too. I'm sure that a lot of people will get a kick out of hearing your voice coming through whatever gramophone style microphone you're using from whenever you used to do this. Dude, this is still, this is, this is actually, I mean, I, it's, 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 I'm looking at it, it's dusty. It needs to be dust off, but this is my, it's a good microphone still. It's a, it's a Yeti USB that I used to do my podcast from. And I'm sure I'll use it for the upcoming podcast and we'll go from there, but you know, we'll see. I think it's fine. Well, thanks for joining me. Thank you to listeners of this Fangraphs Audio segment for Kevin Goldstein. I'm Eric Longenhagen. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorela. My guest on this segment is Ruben Amaro, former big league outfielder, former big league executive, including general manager, former first base coach. And currently, I believe, Ruben, you are in the the media world. You are doing what I am. You are working for, what is it, NBC Sports Philadelphia? Yes, indeed, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm crossed over to the other side. So uh, it's uh, kind of an exciting thing for me, and I enjoyed it last year. Hopefully, I'll get a chance to do some more of it this year. Yeah, it's scary on this side, isn't it? <laughs> it's a little scary, a little different, but I'm uh, I'm a little bit more loose-lipped and, and allows me to, to speak a little bit more freely, which is a nice thing. <laughs> oh, and we are going to take advantage of that, Ruben, let me tell you. <laughs> We're going to talk a lot on this podcast about the Philadelphia sports scene because you are, as people who maybe follow you on Twitter know, you are an avid Philadelphia <laughs> sports fan. But let's start with a few things that are topical. And you, of course, are a former GM, Jeff Breidich just traded Nolan Arenado, and I know that you can't really talk about that trade specifically, but you can weigh in on the autonomy or lack thereof that a general manager does have when a big deal like that, you know, big financial decisions are made. Well, I guess my first foray into this sort of a situation, uh, and I can really relate pretty directly uh, with it, and it was one of the big decisions that the organization had to make was involving Scott Rowland. If you remember years back when when Ed Wade was the general manager, we we tried to to sign Scott Rowland to a, a to a deal that was well over a hundred million dollars, and at that time was a tremendous amount of money. And Scott just uh, had decided that this is not the place he wanted to be. That changed, I think, his attitude about uh, Philadelphia changed a little bit uh, later on, which we had promised was going to happen at some point. But uh, we ended up having to make a trade, and we probably um, we did okay with the trade, but probably made uh, you know maybe 50 cents on the dollar just because we were forced into a situation where we had to try to get as much value as we possibly could at the time. And when you say we, you are talking about the organization. And, yes. Mr. and Mr. Wade was your boss. You could not do whatever you wanted with the roster. No, I went, Mr. Wade was the boss at the time, and really, and and Ed was, um, and his boss was David Montgomery. And you know, when you when you put yourself in a position to to offer that kind of money to make your franchise player uh, to keep him in uniform, and they're just not willing to do it, it puts you know the GM in a very very difficult spot. We went through that same sort of situation with Kurt Schilling as well, and. Uh, Again, I was the assistant GM at the time, and, and it makes just for a very difficult situation. We had somewhat of a similar situation when I was the GM, and we were deciding what to do with Cole Hamels. We ended up signing him and then subsequently trading him about a year and a half later, but you know, with the promise that we were going to try to be contenders every year, and, and it just didn't work out when we started to, uh, to do our transition. It was time for us to, to move forward, and we had to do it without without him and utilize, try to use that asset to to uh, to build the organization, rebuild the organization. And you just mentioned Kurt Schilling a few minutes ago. You mentioned Scott Rowland. You, of course, played with Schilling. 
you were the GM with, with Roland on the team, they were bo both big names in the Hall of Fame discussions this year. What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, they sure were. I actually played with Scott and was the assistant GM with him. Um, and then uh, was the, well, did play with, with, with Shill and then he was traded while I was the assistant GM as well. But I think one of the, uh, I think that they're tremendous athletes. I think they were iconic type players in their eras. And in my estimation, based on the numbers and based on uh, their quality of play, I believe that they're both uh, Hall of Fame candidates in my mind. And I, of course, voted for uh, Scott Rowland. Uh, I think listeners here know that I did not vote for Kurt Schilling. You know, we probably don't need to get into those reasons. I also voted for Bobby Abreu, who you are quite familiar with. Yeah, I'm very familiar with him. I, I actually got a chance to play against Bobby. And then, you know, obviously he, he came to the organization in a, in a very big trade when uh, Ed Wade kind of masterminded that trade to get him for uh, Kevin Stocker, I believe it was. But I think Ed was kind of enamored. He was kind of, I think that was Ed's white whale at the time. But And he was a, a very, very strong prospect for the Houston Astros at the time. But uh, Bobby, just a just a beautiful swing, had all the tools that you that you needed, basically a five-tool player. People don't talk about that all that much. Tremendous discipline at the plate, and really his numbers are now, you know, highly lauded uh, more now probably than they were back in, back when he was playing in Philadelphia. And I think Bobby was such one of those guys that played so effortlessly that people actually thought he wasn't grinding it out. You know, that's something that it's kind of a faux pas in Philadelphia. They want people who are you know, look like they're really grinding it out. And Bobby was so smooth that it almost looked like, you know, he wasn't trying, which was not the case because he played, you know, probably average about 160 games a year. There was a little bit of J.D. Drew in there. Uh, Drew did miss time, but living here in Boston, and you probably know very well that Trot Nixon was the dirt dog that everybody loved. And J.D. Drew right. was a guy who never looked like he really cared, but he cared and he was a very good baseball player. Yeah, and I didn't know I didn't know JD all that well. I guess the, uh, the fans have a bitter taste in their mouths as a, as a fan. As I was playing at the time when JD was drafted and un, un, was not able to be signed here in Philadelphia, but you know I did play with Bobby and I know Bobby for a long time and 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 spent time spent a lot of time and he did really care. I mean, he was one of those guys and he's a very very heady, intelligent player. Like I said, he was just one of those guys that wasn't really super fiery and didn't have that fiery demeanor, but, uh, but he did care. He liked to win, you know, winning and losing was important to him. And, you know, he got kind of a bad rap in that regard, I think, here in Philadelphia. And Dustin Pedroia, probably nobody recently has cared about winning more, more than he. <laughs> yeah, no, Dustin's another guy that, uh, that I got a chance to coach in Boston, which was a great experience for me, being able to coach for John Farrell and being hired by John and, and Dave. It was a great experience just because I got to uh, be with a lot of great coach mates who I had actually played with over the years. So there was, it was a great time and, and the passion there was tremendous, but Dustin, you know, obviously kind of epitomized the effort and stuff that, you know, people loved in Boston. He was probably as well loved in Boston as Chase Utley was in Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, those are guys who are iconic type players that, you know, those East coast teams, they, uh, and those fan bases, they love to see those guys grinding things out. And I think that Chase Utley is a favorite. I know that Chase Utley is a huge favorite with Fangrass readers and listeners. His Hall of Fame candidacy will be very interesting to watch. 
It really will. And, and it's really unfortunate that he had some of the injury issues with his knees that, uh, that, that may, that may put him in a position to, uh, cause, because I think he was probably headed that way based on, you know, based on his ability and based on the numbers and the way he played and, uh, and the way he was revered as a, as an athlete here in Philadelphia in particular. And then obviously when he went over to Los Angeles, became more of a mentor um, and a grinder over there to help some of the younger players, you know, kind of learn the game. And, and I think he's still one of their, one of their special assistants over there for Andrew Friedman. And that's uh, couldn't have a better, better guy. I hope at some point he gets an opportunity to manage if he, if that's something he gets, to, you know, he really wants to do. Yeah. Do you like his hall of fame chances? You know, it's hard to tell. I mean, he, he went through a period where he was as dominant a second baseman offensively as anybody in the game and actually made himself uh, an above average second baseman as well, even though he was, um, it took some, some time to get that work in to do that. But, you know, in this day and age, you never know. He's one of those guys that does uh, probably teeters on the brink. And I know he would have been there had he not gotten his, you know, curtailed a little bit with his with his knee injuries. But it's still a possibility. I think he's got a shot at it. I think it's probably a 55% chance would be my guess. And I think that Dustin Pedroia probably will not make it because of his injuries. And ironically, because he played injured, very injured for part, you know, parts of two years, he ended up hitting 299 rather than, than 300, which in the grand scheme doesn't really mean anything. But I know that people love, love round numbers by pure chance. And we are talking today on Wednesday, two days before this podcast runs. It is Bake McBride's birthday. Bake McBride saw his lifetime average drop to 299 in his final season. Yeah, it's funny that you bring up that name, Dave, because uh, when I was a bat boy in Philadelphia, you know, there was a lot of iconic players, Mike Schmidt, Larry Boa, Bob Boone, Steve Carlton, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, Shake and Bake was one of my many trio even. I mean, I can name a whole ton of those guys. I love them as a as a bat boy. I love them as a fan and, and someone that uh, my dad had intimate relationships with just because he was a coach. But, but Shake and Bake was one of my favorites. He actually gave me one of my first uh, bats because he used a really tiny bat. I think he used like a 32, 32-ounce 32 bat or a 32-inch, 32-ounce bat or something like that. And I thought that's the only one I could wield around. And I was probably uh, 15 or 16 years old at the time. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that is kind of ironic. I, I know that's a big number for people, and and you know you can say you know walk away from the game and say you're a 300 hitter. I think was it Billy Buckner was another one of those guys that was pretty close to. But um, anyway, um, I just think that uh, it's unfortunate that Dustin and and Shake and Bake weren't able to cross that that threshold. Yeah, I believe John Cruck ended up at 300 even. And he also had, if I'm remembering the the number correctly, maybe like a 133 or 134, you know, WRC plus. He was a very, very good hitter. Yeah, sure was, and he's a he's a great teammate on the air as well. But he's, uh, you know, John was one of those guys who was literally born to hit. I mean, he could uh, he he could walk right out of. Uh, uh, out of bed and, and, and put the barrel on the, on the baseball. And it was uh, fun, fun, fun to watch him hit and fun to watch him do those things. And, you know, it's something that this game needs a little bit more of, I hope. Uh, I hope that thing, that trend turns around because putting bat to the ball is, uh, is something I think is still an important element of the game. <laughs> yeah, amen. You went through Cleveland in your career and you played with both Manny Ramirez and Albert Bell. Th- those guys could hit a baseball. Yeah, they were just fantastic. I remember Manny was just a kid, you know. In fact, Manny was one of the reasons why they didn't make the team in '94 because he they finally 
let him make the team as opposed to uh, holding him back for purposes of, of uh, you know, holding on to him longer in Cleveland, which is a common practice nowadays. But, you know, Manny, Manny just a, such a special uh, natural talent. And, you know, back then, Manny could run, he could field, he could throw, he could do a lot of different things. And I remember putting my arm around him one day and saying, hey, Matt, you got to make sure you, uh, you continue to hone those skills. He started to drift away and started to put a lot more importance into that, into that bat than anything else. But no better bat because he was as good a, an offensive player as there was in the game for a long, long time. And obviously, Albert Bell had one of the most phenomenal seasons I've ever seen a player have. Uh, that one year, we won 100, and, 100 games in 140 dates or whatever it was. And, you know, he had 50 doubles, 50 home runs. I think he drove in 130, 140 runs. I mean, some ridiculous numbers and did not end up winning the MVP, probably because of his personality or, or uh, his his uh, poor relationships, I guess, with, with the media, unfortunately, I think Mo Vaughn won the MVP. And I thought that was a, I thought that was a farce as far as the actual production was concerned. It was, of course, although Vaughn, of course, a, a, a great hitter in his time. Your father played with uh, a young Dick Allen. And I think in a lot of ways, Dick Allen is similar to, to Albert Bell and maybe even, even Manning. Yeah, I mean, they're all three different people, but I think that there are some uh, some levels of being misunderstood amongst all of them, really. You know, Manny came from a very, you know, he did his, his education level wasn't really high, and, and uh, he had unbelievable baseball IQ, but otherwise his educational opportunities were not there, living in, you know, growing up where he grew up in the inner city and such. And Albert was really intelligent. Just different personalities and people that probably weren't very well understood and, and a little bit misunderstood, and certainly Dick Allen was one of those guys and uh, my dad has always told me he was one of the best athletes he's ever been on the field with and you know my dad uh, used to rank you know the Mickey Mantles and the Mazes and the Aarons really high and the Clementes of the world and and I know that he used to talk about Dick Allen in those uh, in the same breath you know just behind those guys as far as his overall talent and athleticism. And your father played with at least one other Hall of Famer and that would be Jim Bunning. Yeah, he sure did. And I uh, had, you know, Jim, uh, obviously one of the real competitors. My dad used to talk a lot about the competitiveness of some of the pitchers back then. Obviously one of those guys who was a bulldog on the mound, the Gibsons and the Drysdales and and those kinds of guys. You know, my dad talked a lot about, about you know, when it's when the time of those guys being on the mound, it's almost like, listen, I'm going to get you out because otherwise you're going to take food out of my mouth. <laughs> my dad had an opportunity then to to, uh, I think my dad was a in, in the minor league system with the Phillies in the front office with Dallas Green when, when Jim was a manager for the Oklahoma City 89ers. So got a long relationship. As a matter of fact, Jim Bunning gave us our very first dog. Our very first dog uh, was an Irish setter. He breeded Irish setters in Kentucky, and uh, he sent one to my dad as a gift. And uh, that ended up being our, our my, my very first dog. It was probably around 10 years old. Right. And do you recall the dog's name? Yep, the name is Bobo, B-O-B-O. He thought it was, he was kind of a foolish look on his face all the time. <laughs> I called him Bobo. That's, that's a good reason, Ruben. <laughs> yeah, a, a few more things. You know, Philadelphia fans are, I don't think the word is famous, they're infamous for being difficult on, on players and general managers, as, as you know. <laughs> you were drafted by the Angels and traded to the Phillies for Von Hayes. My recollection of Hayes is that he was very popular until his skills started to erode. And at the time you were traded, he was probably getting booed more than cheered. 
Yeah, that's it's unfortunate that that's that's the sort of thing that happens because you know I mean obviously it came over with the reputation that he was traded for you know the five for one trade and such and then had you know close to MVP type years for for a number of years and then you know it's uh, it's funny Philadelphia is definitely one of those places where they uh, hold your feet to the fire and then and, and it's one of those what have you done for me lately I think it's funny there's a lot of revisionist history at times but. But I can tell you that that some of those players are very uh, well thought of after the fact. You know, there's a very there's a high passion in Philadelphia and they understand the games well and they understand their sports well. But if you look back and you, you know, talk to some of the fans who have seen Von Hayes in the past or watched him and or or other players who uh, ended up being jettisoned and, and, and out of Philadelphia, I think that they'd be very pretty highly, highly respected. And you grew up in an era where sports in Philadelphia were great. You had, I believe, the Julius Irving, Moses Malone, you know, yeah, Sixers. I, yeah, no, no question. It was a great time to grow up in Philadelphia, you know, in the late 70s, uh, mid to late 70s and early 80s. I mean, the Phillies won in 1980. My dad was a coach. Uh, the Eagles, I think, went to the Super Bowl in 81. Um, we had the Sixers who were winning you know, championships with Irving and Malone and Cheeks and those guys. And uh, uh, it was a heck of a time to grow up in Philadelphia. And and, and the Flyers were winning, you know, Stanley Cups and, and when I was 10 years old in like uh, 75 or more, 74 or whatever, and back-to-back Stanley Cups with Bernie Perrant, Bobby Clark, and Rick McLeish and guys like that. I mean, it was a pretty fantastic time for for uh, for a young man to, to or for a kid to be growing up in Philadelphia. Yeah, well, let's put you on the spot, Ruben. If we were to put together a Mount Rushmore of Philadelphia <laughs> sports heroes, what what would that look like? Oof, that's a tough one. Can I make it more like eight or ten or twelve? <laughs> because... It's your mountain, Ruben. <laughs> it's my mountain. Well, let me see. I'll start off with the Phillies. I mean, for me, it'd be difficult for me, for me not to mention mention Mike Schmidt as you know one of the top notch guys. Steve Carlton would have to be on that. Um, and then and then if you get closer to you know, you get closer to uh, the most latest era. I think you're talking about guys like Chase Utley and Jimmy Rollins being on that. Maybe even Ryan Howard. They were three of the best players at their position ever in, in the history of that sport. I guess if you slide over to uh, the Eagles, I think Brian Dawkins most recently is probably one of the most popular guys in the game. Dick Vermeil was probably a really big name as, a, as far as a coach is concerned. Buddy Ryan maybe even. I would say for me, I had uh, Harold Carmichael was an iconic player for me. I, had, I don't know how many consecutive games with uh, catching the pass for the Eagles. And then the Flyers, I guess I'd have to say Bobby Clark would be close to top of the list there for me. And uh, and Bernie Perrant would be right there as 1A and 1B as far as uh, popularity is concerned. And then if you slide over to the Sixers, got to be Julius Irving. Moses Malone's got to be in there. Mo Cheeks even. My God, there's probably uh, tons of Charles Barkley as well. He's a good friend, and he's also was an iconic player on on so many different levels. And I think there's a lot of people hopeful that Joel, that Joel Embiid ends up being one of those guys on that on that wall. So I'm sure I've missed you know guys like Brian. Like I think I meant, mentioned Brian Dawkins. I'm sure I missed a ton of people that uh, that I'll get buried for. But I was a huge fan. I love the players, and I uh, grew up in a really phenomenal time in in, uh, in Philadelphia. And, and I was fortunate enough to live out the dream to be able to play and, and to be in the front office with him as well. Yeah, I think Alan Iverson maybe would. Uh, yeah, you know, AI is certainly one of them. Yep. 
you know, may, maybe even the great world be free if you want to go back to uh, <laughs> he when we were younger had man. The best name. He had the best name that he transferred over to. So that was, he had, certainly had the best name. <laughs> yes, I, I think we're running out of time, Ruben. Um, I do want to ask you one more question going back to your career. And that is, do you recall ever being thrown out at the plate trying to score? <laughs> I sure do. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure I did. Um, I know that I know that I believe that I got thrown out in my very first year at the plate. I got thrown out by Ken Griffey Jr. like two or three times in my rookie year. He was playing for Bellingham, Washington. And I remember calling one of my buddies up, uh, David Esker, who's now the head coach at, at Stanford, and I'm calling up and said, I just think I saw a Hall of Famer. He's 17 years old. He's the best player I think I've ever seen. <laughs> I think he threw me out two or three times in, in the very first series I played in professional baseball. And I had already graduated from Stanford at the time. He was only 17 years old. But in the big leagues, though, do you recall? I'm sure I got thrown out plenty of times. <laughs> I mean, you, I'm, obviously, you're thinking, I'm, I'm sure you're thinking about something pretty specific. <laughs> no, what, what I'm asking, this is a, it's an odd question, is uh, you finished your career with 100 RBIs and 99 runs scored. <laughs> <laughs> You could have become, and I did look this up, no player in big league history has scored 100 runs and driven in exactly 100. So. Oh, man, that kind of that pisses me off a little bit. That uh, I, didn't, I didn't realize that was my that, those were the numbers. I, I should have been a better player. I wasn't a very good player in the major leagues. I was a much better minor league player, but I guess that's why those guys make the big bucks, right? <laughs> exactly. So we are out of time. So once again, I am David Lorela. That was Ruben Amaro, who, if he was a little quicker, could hold a unique record. <laughs> if he was quicker in the day, he probably hasn't lost a step. So <laughs> thanks for listening to Fangraphs Audio. Dave, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> thanks, Ruben. This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you liked what you heard, consider sharing the show with a friend. You can help us out just by spreading the word about our program. We will be back next week with more baseball conversation and analysis. Thank you, and have a good weekend.